So we are up to Ecclesiastes 11, and I'll read verses 1 through 8. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know what is the way of the wind, or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening do not withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Truly the light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. But if a man lives many years and rejoices in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. All that is coming is vanity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask you to give us ears to hear, eyes to see, a mind that will understand and grasp the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord for all of your many blessings to us. We uh, lift up praise and thanks to you, uh, to your Son, and to the Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that you would open us up to your love. In Christ's name, amen. We have a manageable number of verses to exegete today, and so it's possible to do so. We have actually four uh, fairly distinct concepts in these eight verses, and it's just two, 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 two. And so they're in your outline, obviously. I have, I have very sparse outlines as compared to Pastor Kaiser, but uh, plenty of room for you to fill in your own notes. The four concepts are, first, to take wise but diverse risks in life. The second is to act based on knowledge, despite imperfect timing. The third is to act based on timing, despite incomplete knowledge. And the last is, in the words of the Apostle John, do not love the world or the things in the world. So now, let's read verses 1 and 2 again, and this is about taking risks. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Now, this is well known, uh, both inside and outside of Christianity. When I started this whole series on Ecclesiastes, I mentioned that there are phrases in Ecclesiastes that are popularly known. It's just if you were to say them, people would recognize them, but they wouldn't necessarily recognize that they're from the Bible. And this is one of them. It's odd. Cast your bread upon the waters. I mean, if you just really read the words, it makes no sense. It just means you'll have soggy bread. And so you have to understand that this is not to be taken literally. If there's any, uh, there are lots of scriptures where it points out the obvious that it's not to be taken literally, but this is one of them. So the only time I've thrown bread in the water is when I'm feeding the carp uh, when I was a kid. And they just all swarm over one another. You can do it down here at the zoo with the little uh, fish pellets or whatever they are. But we would always take a big loaf of bread up to feed the carp when I was a kid. We'd drive out to the dam and do that. And so that's not a very good picture for us 
to share. But it's just what comes to mind. So you have to kind of deal with that reality. Now, it is obviously a metaphor. It's difficult to know exactly what is meant, but really in the overarching scheme of things, you know what is intended by this phrase. So let's first address overall intent, and then we'll kind of dig into the details of it. So the overall intent, there are two very popular interpretations of this. They're a little different, but actually they kind of tie together in a way that makes them not so big a deal that there are two different opinions. But the first, and for instance, when you read Matthew Henry, you'll see he brings this out. Uh, The first concept is generosity. It's implying that this person in casting his bread upon the water is somehow casting it out for other people to benefit from it. It's a gift. It's, It's us blessing other people with our property. There is a second interpretation, and that is that it's an investment. You're casting your bread upon the waters, expecting some form of return. Now, I think both are possible, but I prefer the latter. I think the context argues for investment as opposed to just generosity, and I'll give you some of my reasons, and you might have your own perspective on this already. But when you read verses 1 and 2, it comes to mind. Cast your bread upon the waters for you will find it after many days. Give a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. Now, if this is done for self-preservation from evil times, which is what the second sentence of verse 2 implies, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. In other words, you're to be generous, let's say, because you don't know what evil will be on the earth. Well, what does that mean then? Is it that you're just wanting to bless other people because they might be able to help you one day in bad times? Is this you paying it forward, so to speak, such that you can have lots of friends if times get rough and they can pay you back one day? Uh, I don't think that's really a biblical concept. Of Now, it's wise. I'm not saying it's not wise to behave like that, but it's not essentially Christian. It's just it's just human. We want friends such that, as a matter of fact, I preached about it a, a, a few weeks ago, where there's strength in numbers. God means for us to act in community like this. And so I, I just think that that argues a little bit against it. And then two, if it's for investment, then it's about preservation of wealth during bad times. It's about preservation of what it is that you're distributing or diversifying. So that just makes more sense to me. And then, too, when you go on past verses 1 and 2, you get into verses 3, 4, 5, and 6, I don't see anything there about generosity. So, in other words, generosity was introduced, but then you go on to change the topics to something that is more like investing. So I just don't see why there would be a change of topic. And then, too, some people take verses 1 and 2, and they'll interpret one as generosity and the other as investment. Again, I just don't see the point. To me, all taken collectively, it's all pointing to the fact that this is all about being wise. And elsewhere in Proverbs, you'll read Proverbs about being wise, acting wisely, apportioning your stuff. So now, back to bread. What is this bread that we're casting on the waters? Well, I'm not going to try to be precise, but I believe, regardless of your perspective of the overall intent, whether it's generosity or investment, you can tell what's implied by the bread. It's you. It's, it's stuff that you value. It's your time. It's your resources. It's your money. It's your passions. All of this is what is being cast out there. 
And so you are casting it upon the waters, meaning you can't necessarily see it or control it. You do your best, you act wisely, but yet it's being cast. And so I believe that this refers mainly to time and money. It's what we uh, focus our passions on in this world. And then it says, you will find it after many days. You will find it after many days. The it obviously refers to the bread, but I believe the bread has been transformed. The, by process, it has been transformed. So we're not talking about the same thing you cast out. Uh, we're all very familiar with Christ's uh, concept of investing, investing when he talks about the landowner going away and giving three servants property, five, three, and two, or, or whatever the denominations were in the different stories. And so he expected you to use that wisely, and he rebuked the person that hid it. So we're talking about a concept that is integral to Christianity. Christ wants us using the resources he's blessed us with. And so that's what's being cast. What you're getting back is something that is bigger than what it is that you had. And, and notice it said, you will find it after many days. This implies that you will succeed by doing this. Now, we know not all investments succeed, but yet what you're doing is you're obeying God by doing this. And so, yes, your circumstances may vary, as the financial markets will always tell you, but that's the principle behind it. You must invest in order to reap rewards. So what Solomon is saying is you will find it after many days. You keep doing this. You keep uh, uh, investing your time, your passions into things. You will reap rewards for it. It's what you must do. It's what we're made to do. So now, let's see how verse 2 works with this, casting your bread, this investment. Verse 2 says, Give a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. This first sentence, give a serving to seven and also to eight, almost implies, and I believe you know, Matthew Henry would have written in the 1600s, and so maybe it was a more common interpretation that this did refer to generosity back then. Because to me, the New King James uh, reference here, calling it serving and calling it uh, evil, you do not know what evil will be on the earth, almost seems to imply certain things. What? But in the ESV, instead of using the word serving, it uses the word portion. Portion. And then instead of evil, it's referred to as a disaster. So in other words, you are apportioning your property to protect against the possibility of disaster. It just seems the very, very natural rendering of this. You're just diversifying your risk. Uh, Sadly, we have an example in Genesis of this where Jacob apportions his families in order, I guess of the order that he loved them or didn't, right? He sends poor uh, uh, Zilpah out there in the front with her children and then Bilhah with her children and Leah with her children and then Rachel, you know, my darling. So it's just such a sad reflection of who are you going to save when all your children are drowning? Well, I guess, okay, I'll pick him and then her and then, you know, it's just so sad. But Jacob did that. He, he just, we have evidence in the Scripture whom Jacob loved and how much he loved them based on how he diversified his risk associated with that. I'm not, I'm not saying that was a good thing he did. It's just what he did. Now, we know risk mitigation is good. It's wise. And this is why. For you do not know what evil will be on the earth. You do not know is a phrase that occurred in our text, these simple eight verses, four times 
you do not know. I said it four times in my reading. And they were all in verses 2, 5, and 6. All of them. So we do not know a lot of things in this world. And if you remember when I talked about how Ecclesiastes is structured, that grasping for the wind ended at the first half. And so all of the first half dealt with that inability to grasp the wind, which means you can't do all that you want to do in this world because you are human and you're frail and you're weak. And you cannot know all that you wish to know in this world. That's the whole second half. And it's emphasized over and over and over again. This is the first occurrence. You do not know what evil, what disaster may come upon you and your stuff. Now, that is the first portion where we talk about this as being a form of risk mitigation. I termed it take wise but diverse risks. God wants us to. We are expected to do this, but he grants us wisdom such that hopefully we'll do it well. Now, the next one is act based on knowledge despite imperfect timing. So, in other words, we know what we want to do, or we may know what we want to do, but we don't know exactly when it's best to do it. And the phrasing is this, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth, and if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. Now, this is so simple. It is so simple. It's almost as if Solomon is talking down to us. Clouds bring rain. Trees fall. Isn't it really just so basic that you think, what on earth is he getting to? If I paid money for this in an investment uh, uh, portfolio, I'd, I'd be worried. You know, this guy's taking me for a ride. You want to you listen to people that are saying things you don't understand. Oh, that's why I'm paying this guy the money. He knows things I don't. But that's not really where true wisdom comes from. True wisdom is built up from the simple and so my kids could take their little Lego blocks when they were little, not last week or anything, but they'd transform these little pieces of Legos into these amazing structures. I was always very impressed with their creativity. And so see, each little Lego block is pretty simple, or they used to be anyway. Now they're really complex. But you get the point. They, you, you can't glom all the complex things on and make something big. They're just the little finishing touches. So see, the simple stuff is what builds up into these vast things that have meaning. When you read the parables of Jesus, you know what we're talking about. Jesus emphasized everything simple. He wasn't trying to overwhelm anybody. He would actually use the simple things to befuddle those that wanted something more complex. And then we get verses 3 and 4. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north, and the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. These are tied together. They're very beautiful. When you begin to extract them, you have in three, if the clouds are full of rain. So you've got rain here. And then you have, they empty themselves upon the earth. You've got rain. You've got it falling. If a tree falls, now why do trees fall? Now, we might theorize that trees fall because aliens come down or a thousand squirrels attack it, but those are unreasonable reasons why trees fall. Why do trees fall? They get old and die, and the wind blows them over. The wind blows them over. So, see, you've got rain, and then you've got wind, 
And then you've got, in the place where the tree falls there, it shall lie. He who observes the wind will not sow wind again. And then you have, in here regards the clouds, will not reap rain. So you've got rain, wind, wind, rain. And then you've got reaping, sowing, sowing, reaping. They each tie in because it says that the one who is watching for the rain clouds will not reap. The one who is watching the wind will not cast out their seed because they don't want it being blown away. So see, what do these point to? What are these telling us? What is Solomon telling us? He's telling us that God uses these big clouds as water buckets to cover the earth. He's giving us facts. He's telling us trees fall when high winds come. That's a fact. But yet he's telling us, you don't know when these things will come. Even with the clouds, we don't know. Now, granted, weather prediction has gotten pretty good. In these days, they would have had no hope to know if rain is going to come tomorrow or three days from now. Now we kind of do, but still we're fooled at times. We still don't understand exactly how the jet streams work, nor can we control them. So, if a tree falls to the south or the north in the place where... So, the wind has knocked it over. We don't know exactly why the wind chose to knock it over at this time or why God chose to have the wind knock it over at this time, but we can anticipate that such things happen. We can anticipate that clouds will drop water on us from time to time and that the wind will knock over trees from time to time. So God has given us a world in which we don't have to worry that aliens from outer space came and knocked those trees down. You know, That's what we make up with our, the imaginations God has given us. But in the world he's created for us, it's wonderful that such things don't happen because our world is a fairly predictable place. We know what can happen. We just don't know when it can happen, nor do we know why it happens usually. Like, for instance, here in Omaha, we know that we will periodically get high wind storms and they'll run into our power lines and then we'll lose power for some time. And so years ago, we had people get generators because we're, we're protecting against this eventuality because it just happens. In an area where you have a lot of high winds and you have a lot of old trees that are much taller than your power lines, you're going to have this stuff happen. So now, he who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. That poor farmer, he just cannot wait for the perfect day in the spring to sow his seed, or the perfect day in the fall to reap his crops. He has to go with what feels close enough because time is pushing against him all the time. He must make a decision by a certain point in time. Uh, if a farmer is a perfectionist, he's not going to be a farmer very long. He's going to be driven out of business because he's going to refuse to have acted until it's too late to act and then he loses his crop. I was watching, now I don't do this often, but a couple weeks ago, I uh, turned on the TV, I think it was a Saturday, and uh, there was a surfing competition on. Now I only saw five minutes of it, but what was interesting though, is they were just wrapping up this surfing competition, you know, and down, I don't know if any of you know about this, but down north of Hawaii, they have these huge surfs off the coast of Australia as well. But so, they often have these surfing competitions down off the coast of Hawaii. So, they were remarking as they were given this wrap-up, that one of the guys that had been expected to do really well but didn't do so well, didn't do so well because he didn't grab the waves when they were available. 
you see, what they do is with each of these surfers, they give them a block of time. And within that block of time, they're allowed to grab so many waves and they get scored on those. And so if a person thinks, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, I'm not going to grab this one. It's not a big one. I'm not going to grab this next one. Before long, all your time has passed. And now you can't grab anyone. So see, they're forcing those people to choose, and they have to choose wisely. So see, surfing isn't the only skill they're being measured on, right? They're being measured on being able to predict the size of waves based on being out there in the midst of them. So there are twofold prediction that's being involved here. So see, when that farmer can't decide when to plant the seeds or when to harvest the crops, he's limited. He's, his human frailties have limited his ability to see into the future, and he's frustrated in that he cannot act with this partial information. And yet God forces him to act. He must act. In order to survive in this world, you must act. That's what wisdom requires that you do. So, that's why I entitled the sermon as I did, Work and Pray. There's so many different nuances of things occurring in these eight texts, but I believe overall what the message is talking about is that God wants us to do stuff. And it's not just about work. He wants us to live boldly. He, want, he doesn't want us to just plug into our days, clock in like we're a mill worker going to work, and just, oh, yeah, another day, another day. He doesn't want you to live like that. He wants you to live life boldly. He wants you to take risks. He wants you to succeed in this world. And so... He knows that you must do this. Now, what you do, though, is you do all you can. You inject all the wise uh, wisdom and the facts that you can into this equation, right? But then you pray. Even your action as to when exactly to do that, though, will often be based on your own instincts telling you. It's not like God is just going to come down and boing, now's the time. I, I read a book, and I've mentioned it several times, but this man made a fortune uh, on the commodities market, but he was a Christian. And he saw so many Christians come and go from that market because they just expected God to boing them on the head whenever it was time to buy or sell a commodity. He's like, they're entirely irrational in their outlook on their Christian lives. Whereas he had the right perspective. No, no. You do all you can with the knowledge you have, then you commit it all to God. I've made all my decisions. God, please protect me from the stupidity of my actions. Should that be what I just did? Now, that is the second point. Act based on knowledge despite imperfect timing. In other words, we know what we want to do, but we don't know exactly when we should pull the trigger. Now, the next portion is very similar but different. Act based on timing despite incomplete knowledge. Here we know what we want to do, but we don't know exactly all the details of it. And so we're being asked to pull the trigger prematurely, perhaps. So this starts at verse 5. As you do not know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening do not withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. This is the second occurrence of do not know and the third occurrence of do not know. They're both here in verse 5. Now, there is debate over this use of the word wind, as you do not know what is the way of the wind. Um, now, in the, we've just talked about the wind and the rain. You'd think, oh, it's just obviously the wind, right? But then you go on to the next sentence, or how the bones grow in the womb of hers who is with child, and it's something totally different. 
And here is where you can be fooled by the fact that the Hebrew uses the very same word for wind or for spirit. And so context must tell you whether you're going to use wind, the wind we all know and love, or spirit, the spirit that we think should have a different word, right? But I was thinking about this, and I'm going to use Ray's name as an illustration. You know, when we say Ray, we might be referring to Mr. Simmons, or we might be referring to a ray of light, or we might be referring to a manta ray that's in a tank in a Monterey Bay Aquarium. You have to know what I'm talking about when I say that based on the context. When I took Greek forever ago, that was the first thing that I realized, that I didn't know English. I had no idea how puzzling English was to understand until I tried to learn another language. Because when I first hit one of these where context has to tell you because it's the same word, I'm like, well, that's stupid. Why isn't there another word? And then I thought, well, wait a minute. English is filled with this. Well, English is a stupid language too, isn't it? All languages are stupid that don't have just one definition for every word, right? But then we can't master such a language because we'd have hundreds of thousands of words that none of us could remember. So see, even in language, God has drilled into us the need to use our brains to differentiate between this and that and that, to apply wisdom, to understand something properly and in context. Yet it's just so amazing that we can do anything useful on this earth in the midst of such ambiguity. So, the, the, I believe this does refer to more the spirit. In other words, uh, as you do not know what is the way of the spirit. And actually the ESV uh, renders this, the way the spirit comes to the bones of the uh, body in the womb of the woman. In other words, it knits them together and says they're the same thing. We don't know how the development of the baby is occurring, nor do we know at what point the uh, spirit is infused, the body is infused by the spirit. I don't know if that's the details, but it does seem to me more likely that the wind is the spirit and it's influencing the next verse as opposed to the previous one where we were talking about rain and wind. Now, the second part, or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, either rendering, whether it's really wind or whether it's talking about the spirit, either way, what is the point? That's the thing about the Bible. You, you, you hit this ambiguity, you can talk about it, you can read pages and commentaries that try to argue their point. But it's interesting because it doesn't matter really. Because the point is, we are limited in our knowledge. Mankind is limited. That's the only thing it's making as a point, that we don't know everything. And so either way we in interpret that word, it just means that we don't know. There is much that man doesn't know. There is some much that man will never know. So you do not know the works of God who makes everything. That's the very next sentence. So see, this is the third occurrence. God made everything. Yet we now live at a time where many of the things that he's made are no longer here. They're extinct. All those dinosaurs, extinct. Except for the dinosaurs that still live, of course. You know, some of you might have realized or read about it that there was a recent mammal found. It's the first mammal that's been found in 35 years. Uh, it was down in Ecuador, in the mountains of Ecuador and Colombia. There is a new mammal that is really cute. It, they described it as a raccoon with a teddy bear face. It's called an olinguito. Olinguito. Now, the olinguito 
was just accepted as this new mammal that's the first one that's been found in 35 years. But the funny thing is, is there was one in the Washington, D.C. Zoo back in 1967 that made the trip around to like five or six other zoos that was attempting to be mating this female with the other males of the Olingo species, which was similar to it, but actually now that they look at them, they're quite different. Well, it never got pregnant. And now they know it's because it was a fundamentally different species, and I guess it wasn't possible for the male Olingo to impregnate the female Olinguito. I say all that, though, because we think we are so smart, don't we? And it really surprised me that we found a mammal that's that cute that we didn't know about before in these mountains. And yet now I, I read about it, and it's been several years they've been trying to prove this thing. And then they found, oh yes, and we once had one in the Washington, D.C. Zoo. So it's just a beautiful illustration of God having filled the earth with all of this. And think about this too. When God created the animals, when I look at the little chihuahua that we just had in our house, um, a bit dog sitting for someone, and I compare it to the Newfoundland that my coworker just got a few weeks ago. He's got a nine-week-old Newfoundland. We had like a, a four-month-old chihuahua. You know, and the chihuahua is just this tiny little thing, and the Newfoundland is, is a, it can get up to 180 pounds. And yet that's all genetic variation within the kind of the canine. I mean, it's just remarkable to me that God probably just created the one, the one canine set in the garden. So what was his intention then? It was to give us, give us the joy of finding this incredible variety that he had built in to that one little kind, that one little species. And so we think we've exhausted the earth, and yet it's not true. It's just, you know, we've not begun to touch it. Now, it's not preventing us from going off and exploring genetically, you know, perhaps doing things that aren't too wise given our limited abilities as mankind. And it's really, uh, time will tell whether just how unwise we're perhaps being with genetic uh, permutations and mutations. But just experimentation based on natural selection has, has been occurring now for, what, a couple hundred years. I was, I was uh, asking Tabitha this morning, who was that guy? that discovered genetics. And right away she said, oh, that was Gregor Mendel. I'm like, man, I've got a bright wife. <laughs> and, and then Micah said he was a monk. And we're like, really? So he looked it up. Yeah, he was an Augustinian friar. So I've got bright kids. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, it's just uh, this guy did all this experimentation with peas to demonstrate that there's all this genetic variety built right into these little plant, this little pea. I remember uh, uh, George Washington Carver, and I used that illustration once before, where, where he just went into his lab for like a two-day period, told his secretary not to bother him, and he came out with hundreds of varieties of things to use peanuts for. Just, just incredible. Our, God has impregnated our earth with so much variety, so much opportunity, and yet most, many people who don't believe think it's just a zero-sum world we live in. If I want something, I have to take it from you or get the government to take it from you to give it to me. It's just sad that we live in such a, 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 a time where our imaginations are so limited in terms of what God has done for us. And verse 6, in the morning sow your seed. 
So we can't know everything, and yet we're told to sow our seed in the morning. So we, say, we, we can't know everything, but yet we're told to act. Act despite your lack of information. We're told to take action. There is a phrase that refers to people that refuse to take action unless, until they know enough, and it's called analysis paralysis. There are people that just refuse to take action until they know all of this. And if there's anything in there that they don't know, they're uncomfortable taking action. And we've all met them in meetings. If you work in an office building, you've met people like this. They just refuse to act until you can answer all these many questions. Now, I'm not saying these people aren't very valuable to the organization. I mean, they will draw stuff out of the woodwork. The rest of us that are just wanting to, you know, you know, We'd be dead in a heartbeat out in the Wild West, right? Well, these people save us. Oh, no, wait a minute. Do you know how many bad guys there are? Well, no. I was just going to go charge the cave and shoot them. So, see, these people save stupid people like the rest of us at times. So, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's just God has mixed up our world in such a way that there's this wide variety. And yet, there is going too far. You want to wait until it's too late. And that's when the other people have to push. Oh, no, 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 you're in our way. You know, hard feelings. But yet, somehow, wise things get done. Good decisions are made. In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening do not withhold your hand. Morning and evening. Remember the principle that we're in the middle of. It is that we are to act based on timing despite having incomplete information. And I believe God has put morning and evening in here as indicative of timing, his timing, his cycles. God has given us daily cycles, weekly cycles, seasonal cycles, annual cycles, seven-year cycles, biblically, 50-year cycles, biblically. See, all of these, I believe, are blessings where God has structured our time on this earth such that we're to behave in a way that is consistent with the cycles he's created. And then he has proverbs about how the ants do this and they, they harvest this and they're not stupid like the grasshoppers who just die in the winter. And so you can see that there is wisdom built into these cycles that God has created. Yet we may wait too long. It's so sad. I, I, our uh, vegetable garden a few years ago, you know, the, the tomatoes keep getting bigger, the, the cucumbers keep getting bigger. You're thinking, oh, yummy, 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 goody, goody, goody. But then you go out there and you pick some of those cucumbers and you've waited too long. They are yucky. They're really bitter and nasty. Whereas if you'd harvested them at the right time, they'd be really good. And yet, oh, bigger, bigger, better, better. No, not in that case. You missed your opportunity. So see, there are all these built-in penalties and rewards for us learning God's timing. He wants us to do things well, and that means in a timely manner. You do not know which will prosper. That's what 6 goes on to. In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening do not withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. What I like here again, though, is it, it doesn't say that both will fail. That's kind of pessimistic, kind of negative. It just says you don't know whether this one will succeed or that one or both. It doesn't even talk about the possibility of both of them failing. It can happen, but yet the emphasis is upon doing what it is God wants us to do, and there's reward for doing that. And as Phil has often said, you can only steer a moving ship. We must be taking action in order for God to be using that action to move forward. We can't just sit 
at home alone waiting for stuff to happen to us. We're humans. God has made us to be acting agents on this earth. We are the main acting agent on this earth. Now, the last point is do not love the world or the things in the world. And this is just a beautiful way to phrase it. Truly, the light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. But if a man lives many years and rejoices in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. All that is coming is vanity. Truly, the light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. Uh, to me, I see a prisoner coming out of a dark dungeon. He's been there for years, and now he's getting his first taste of freedom in all that time, and he just looks up at the sun and drinks in the beauty, the warmth, just the sheer pleasure of being back outside, out from that dank, dark dungeon. God made us for this. He made us to experience that joy. It's partly why I like living where I tell people we have the best of the weather in the Midwest. We have the brutal cold winters, and we have the hot, humid summers. It's just the best of both worlds. So see, that, those extremes make us appreciate life. I lived in California. I lived there for a long time. People don't appreciate the weather in California. I will tell you that. They take it for granted. They complain about the weather probably more than us. It's crazy, but that's the way it is. It's just you take for granted these blessings that you have, and yet when you lose them, then you realize, oh, you know, that's why my wife has wanted to move back to California all this time. Because we both may have taken it for granted then, now she can appreciate it. <laughs> she appreciated it then too. God made us to enjoy His creation. And when I say made, He made us to enjoy His creation. What I mean is that we are like puzzle pieces. God made our world to support us, to mate with us in a very real way. He's made this world for our pleasure. He's made it for our enjoyment. In Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. And just prior to that, Moses had written about how the plant and the animal kingdoms interrelated. The entire plant kingdom was there for the benefit of man and animals. And so God has woven all of this together in a way that we derive pleasure from doing the things that God wants us to do with the creation that He's blessed us with. Proverbs 10.22 says, The blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and He adds no sorrow to it. So I mentioned a while back that God wants us to be joyful. He's made us to enjoy this world. And it would be a sad reflection on us as Christians if it is the unbelievers that enjoy this world more than we do. And yet, often that is the case. It's just sad but true. We, of all people, should recognize that God has blessed us with this world. We should appreciate it. But if a man lives many years and rejoices in them all. So see, God made us to enjoy the light of the sun. It's a privilege, but it's also a responsibility. He's given us duties to do in the earth, but they are joyful duties. And we are to take pleasure in them. Uh, I read a book a long, long time ago. I forget. I think it's in that Christian employee one that has the egg on it. And uh, he used the phrase that many Christians he knows are fussy moralists 
clucking their tongues at other people. And I thought, you know, that's a good illustration of, of Christianity these days. It's just sad that we Christians aren't much more joyful, much more indicative of what it means to have God as our Father, to have God as our Savior, to have this world as our home for now. There's a better home coming, but this home is great. We're not just to drudge through this world like we're slaves in Mordor. No, we're to enjoy this world. But let him remember the days of darkness. All that is coming is vanity. God made us to enjoy the light of the sun. Yet, every day, he takes the sun away from us. Every day, he deprives us of it. I believe that's indicative of what God wants us to remember. That it is his to give, it is his to take away. He can lavish it upon us. He can deprive us of it. And we must honor him in that role. To the degree that we do not is the degree to where we will not enjoy life. We are not living for the right reason if we're not enjoying God each day and thanking Him for all of what He has done. But yet this uh, last portion I'll get into in greater detail next time. And so I wanted to kind of end with these three thoughts. First, God intends for us to live life. In order to do that well, we must take risks, do so wisely. Second, we must act despite imperfect timing and incomplete knowledge. We just have to act. God requires it of us. And lastly, appreciate the giver of the gifts more than the gifts themselves. Father, we thank you for your many blessings to us. We thank you for this world that we live in, for the many uh, treasures that you've filled it with, the incredible uh, beauty and the pleasure that we derive from what it is that we see and experience. Uh, Lord, you have given us to these not as guilty pleasures, but as pleasures. And so we thank you for them. We ask you, Lord, to give us wisdom that we would know how and when to take the risks that you want us to take and that we would uh, depend upon you in all things, that we would do all we can and then we would cast it all into your lap knowing that you love us, that you care for us, that you want us to succeed. And so we pray, Father, that we would cast all of our cares upon you at the end of each day, that we would rest secure in the knowledge that you will revive us and direct us in what to do in the new day ahead of us. We thank you, Lord, for your many blessings. In Christ's name, amen.